Good, you're doing good. All right, if you have your Bible, open up to Jonah chapter 4 with me. The book of Jonah chapter 4 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You are more than welcome to grab one of those and open it up with us. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and we are glad that you have joined us for worship today. Today is a special day for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is that today begins Holy Week for uh, the Christian. We remember when Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem riding on the colt, uh, where he would spend his last week in Jerusalem preaching in the temple, eventually being betrayed and arrested by his um, closest friends and, and then being crucified uh, on Friday and then rising again on Sunday. And so uh, we will be having a Good Friday service this Friday at 7 p.m. And so we invite you to join us for that. Always a very special time uh, at church here. Uh, and then next Sunday is, of course, Easter, where we will celebrate Jesus' resurrection. So today, the Christian church gathers together all around the world to remember Palm Sunday, the time when Jesus rides <coughs> into the city. You and I will be in Jonah chapter 4, um, because today is the end of our Jonah series. And so, for the past few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Jonah as a kind of text for us to embrace during the season of Lent, which is this time before Holy Week, where we repent of our sins and we seek to be transformed more into the image of Christ. We seek to be prepared to be able to celebrate Holy Week, to be able to celebrate Easter Sunday. Uh, and so we've been walking through the book of Jonah. We'll land in Jonah 4 this morning, a short little chapter to end the book. If you uh, have not been with us or are not familiar with the story of Jonah, let me catch you up very quickly. Uh, Jonah has been um, spoken to by the Lord. The Lord comes to Jonah and says, you need to go preach to the Ninevites. Uh, the Ninevites are the capital city, Nineveh, of Assyria, which is this evil empire that will eventually come and destroy Israel. They are the sworn enemies of Israel. They are a national security threat to Israel. So Jonah, being a good Israelite, a good Hebrew, um, does not desire to go preach to Nineveh, to the Ninevites. And so he goes in the other direction. He disobeys the Lord for the first time. It won't be the last time he disobeys the Lord. He goes in the other direction, gets on a ship, and heads off into the distance. While he's on the ship, God sends a storm uh, to come, and it, it, it stirls up the sea, and, and the boat is in danger with these sailors. And the sailors ask Jonah, what's going on? Why are we in such danger? And Jonah says, it's me. Throw me overboard. And so they throw Jonah into the water where he is very famously swallowed by the fish. Uh, and then Jonah chapter 2, we get this prayer from Jonah in the belly of the fish. He comes to his senses in uh, a sense and, and prays to the Lord. And the Lord um, brings him out of the fish. The fish vomits him up back onto dry land. And then in chapter 3, the Lord comes to Jonah one more time and says, Now go. You've gone through this big detour. Now go and preach to Nineveh. And so Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches um, if you'll remember from last week, it's not the best sermon that's ever been preached. Jonah kind of half-heartedly goes to Nineveh and preaches. But amazingly, the whole city, this um, probably the, the, the most majestic city on earth at that time, is converted from the highest in the society to the lowest in the society. The king himself um, comes to the knowledge of God, and they all repent, and then God decides not to bring disaster on the city. All of that brings us to chapter 4, where we'll see Jonah's reaction to what God has done in Nineveh, and then we'll see God's reaction to Jonah's reaction. So, Jonah chapter 4, uh, verse 1, we'll pick it up. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? 
So Jonah reacts to the Ninevites um, repenting and turning of their evil ways, turning away from their evil ways with anger. It displeased him exceedingly, and he became angry. He reaches this kind of suicidal attitude in his life, which brings us to a very prominent and profound kind of theological question. This is a surprising ending to the book of Jonah. You would probably expect there to be one more verse after chapter 3, maybe 3.11. And Jonah went home happy, and Jonah went back to his land rejoicing. Instead, you get this kind of surprise twist where Jonah, after all of this, still doesn't understand what God's heart is, doesn't understand God's desire and ability to forgive the Ninevites. So Jonah is very, very upset at the Lord. Um, It brings us to this theological question, very prominent, very profound. Huh? What? What are are you doing here, Jonah? Jonah is freaking out because God has saved the the Ninevites. Um, He wants to die. He, He prays to the Lord. This is the second prayer from Jonah in the book of Jonah. Jonah's kind of split into two, and so something happens in the first part, and then he prays to the Lord, and the Lord responds. And then something happens in the second part, and he prays to the Lord, and the Lord responds. This is his second prayer. It's a little different from his first prayer in the belly of the fish. In his first prayer, Jonah is in the realm of death. He's under the water in the belly of a fish, and he's longing for life. He's praying that God might give him life. Now Jonah is alive and well, But watch the prayer reverse. Now he's praying that the Lord would kill him. Now he's praying that he would be able to die to spare himself of experiencing a world in which God loved the Ninevites, a world that he can't seem to to fathom and want to exist. So he he tells the Lord, he prays to the Lord. I'm not sure this counts as a very elegant prayer, um, but the, the narrator gives him that term. He prays to the Lord. Is this not what I knew you were going to do? Is this not the reason I went in the opposite direction at the very beginning? And then he quotes uh, from Exodus 34, a very foundational text about God's identity, very important text to the Jewish people. He says, I knew, and this knew should probably be read in like an accusatory tone. Um, Jonah's not just saying, I knew this is how you happened. He said, I knew you were going to do this. I had this suspicion all along for you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now keep your finger here. Remember that verse and go to Exodus 34. This is where Jonah is quoting from, Exodus 34, where you get this very important text about God's identity and character. But we'll notice there's a difference between what Jonah quotes and then what is actually there in Exodus 32. And it's in seeing what Jonah leaves out from the quote that we'll see a little bit more clearly what Jonah meant when he accused the Lord of being merciful. In Exodus 34, we'll read verse 6 and 7. It says this, The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Right, in their their false worship and their idolatry. God sees this going on and tells Moses, again, this best friend relationship. Um, When Moses dies, the the Bible will say there was never a man like Moses who talked to God face to face, who walked so closely with the Lord. God tells Moses, you need to get away from me. I need some time. And he says, by the way, I'm going to kill all those people. And Moses says, I'm not going to leave until we figure this out. Why don't you not kill all of those people? 
Um, remember that you're a God gracious and slow to anger. You want to forgive the Israelites. You just brought them out of Egypt. If they die now, people will say you couldn't protect them. You couldn't get them through the wilderness. And Moses actually is able to convince God to change his mind, to relent, to repent. And God says, okay, I'm not going to kill all of them. Um, you have convinced me. Here, though, uh, Jonah is quoting God's character as being gracious and merciful, not to intercede for people, but to complain about what God has done. He's the opposite of Moses. Moses uses that character trait in order to help others. Jonah instead um, complains about it. Jonah is also not only the anti-Elijah and the anti-Moses, he's the anti-Job. If you remember the story of Job, Job uh, is a man close to God, and he has all of his loved possessions and family members taken away from him. He loses health, and Jonah, or Job, excuse me, gets to the point where he wants to die, just like Jonah. Again, though, notice that Job gets there for an opposite reason. Job gets there because God is hard on him, because he is suffering. Jonah gets there because he has um, been protected, and he has um, been made successful. Uh, and this leads Jonah to the um, suicidal attitude that he has. Lastly, Jonah is the anti-Abraham. Uh, Abraham, like Moses, has this scene in the Old Testament where he intercedes on behalf of some other people. If you remember, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham starts bargaining with God, saying, what if we found this many people who were righteous? Could we not destroy the city then? And God says, okay, if we find that many people, we'll do it. Abraham's not too comfortable with that arrangement, though, so he says, why don't we lower that number a little bit? What if it was a little bit less? Can we not destroy the city then? God says, okay. After a few rounds of this bargaining, Abraham's able to successfully intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, though, Jonah here is arguing with God not to save a city, but because he has saved a city. Um, Jonah is the anti-Abraham. Um, and so the Lord asks him, do you do well to be angry? Is this right for you to be so upset that I have dealt mercifully with the Ninevites? And we'll see how Jonah responds in verse 5. He ignores the question. He doesn't answer it. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Notice this is the first time and only time in the book of Jonah he's actually happy. Uh, Jonah is a happy man here with his plant coming up to give him shade. But because he was happy, God quickly acts in verse 7. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant's. So that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Again, God asked Jonah a question, says to him, Do you do well to be angry for the plants? First, it was, Are you well to be angry for Nineveh? Now, are you well to be angry for the plants? And Jonah has had enough at this point. He responds to the Lord's question. He says, I do. I do do well to be angry for the plant. Angry enough, he says, to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God enacts a parable, a prophecy here with Jonah. He sends this plant, almost like this prank he pulls on Jonah. It's, it's comical at the end here. Um, Jonah is upset. He goes out. A plant grows up next to him. He's finally happy. He's got some shade. He's got a little bit of relief. 
Um, you've got to imagine Jonah's going out of the city, and he's going to wait the 40 days he gave Nineveh to change their ways, hoping against all hope that God will end up destroying Nineveh after these 40 days. And so he's sitting to the east of the city. The plant comes up. Jonah gets happy for a moment, and then God kills the plant. The plant goes away, and Jonah is again exceedingly upset. And the Lord says, all right, let's, let's look at this situation, and let me reveal to you what just happened in a larger sense. You're upset about this plant because it died. But you had no involvement in the plant. You didn't make the plant grow. You didn't care for the plant. It came in the night. It was gone in the night. And can I not be, says, upset about the Ninevites? Can I not have pity on them? Jonah ends in a question. The whole book ends with this question. It's left hanging open. The Lord it almost seems like he's asking permission from Jonah. Is it not okay that I have pity on the city? Is it not okay that I shall love towards 120,000 people who are ignorant of what they're doing, don't even know right from wrong? And then interestingly enough, he mentions the cattle. God seems to care about the cows here. And, and I don't want to destroy all these cows. There's a lot of cattle in the city. Um, PETA loves the end of Jonah, right? Uh, if you're looking for proof that God cares about animals, you got it uh, at the end of Jonah. Should I not care for all these people and all the livestock? Um, Nineveh's abounding in livestock in a way similar to how God is abounding in loving kindness. And thus, the story of Jonah ends. Jonah does not seem to arrive at a um, conclusion. Jonah does not seem to get to where we desire him to be. As we relate to Jonah and watch him go through the story, we are hoping that he gets to this kind of finality in his life, that he learns the lesson, but we're not told if he did. It indeed looks like he uh, has not learned. I want to go through quickly three lessons we learn from the end of Jonah. Uh, and then we'll wrap up our sermon series. The first is this. Um, from Jonah 4, I think we learned that God's love uh, is a patient and promiscuous love. It's a, a love that is remarkably and surprisingly and sometimes frustratingly patient. Um, God gives people, he gives creation time and space to repent, to come to their senses, to turn back to him. If you've thought about how long it's been since Jesus first came, um, we've gotten a couple thousand of years, and, and Christians have always wondered, why is it taking this long? Um, and the historic answer has been God's giving people opportunities. God is patiently enduring the pain of his creation so that more people might come to know him and to love him. God's love for us is patient, um, and God's love for others is patient. And if we're honest with ourselves, especially I think as American Christians, this sometimes bothers us as much as, much as it bothered Jonah. The fact that God can love people that we don't love, who we think are outside of the bounds of God's forgiveness and God's grace, um, who, who are our sworn enemies. I don't know if you've ever had a situation like this where someone has wronged you in some way um, that it makes you angry to think about the idea that God might love that person. And you know intellectually it doesn't make sense. You know, of course God loves everybody, God loves that person, but in your gut and in your heart um, it upsets you that God is not as mad as you are about that person and going to destroy them. You've seen all the wrongs they've done. You've experienced all the wrongs. Surely God's going to exact vengeance on them. And instead, God forgives them, and you're let down. You know, who's going to stand up for me now? Or as a nation state, um, it's easy to um, be paired off into groups and tribes and to set ourselves over and above other people or other groups. Um, and this is often one of the pitfalls um, for nations and for religion in a nation is religion often gets tied up with patriotism and nationalism and it's easy to imagine God loves your country more than other countries particularly other evil countries this is what Jonah was encountering but Jonah had to come to grips with the fact that 
God perhaps likes both sides of the war battleground. God perhaps wants to see all saved, not one group victorious and one group destroyed. We often, I think, come to the Lord with a rival guard, God still in our heart. And we often use the true God as a way to get to our rival God, to get what we really want out of life. God becomes an, a means to the end. And, and what often happens is our rival God will be taken away from us. For, for Jonah, it was seeing his enemies destroyed. And when it was taken away from him, Jonah felt the sense of depreciation. Jonah felt empty inside. There was no reason to get up in the morning anymore. That's how you know what is in your heart um, that is rivaling for competition with God. When it's taken away, if you lose that sense of well-being, that sense of satisfaction, you know you've been placing way too much emphasis on this in your life, whether it's your job, or your vocation, or this relationship. Um, often we, we come to God and we say, we'll follow you as long as following you gets us to where we wanted to go in the beginning. And then when God leads us in a different direction, or God disappoints us of some aspect of his character or his will, um, we often find ourselves in this place of collapse, which Jonah is in. So, number one, the, the first lesson, God is a God of patient love. Um, number two, um, we, we see from Jonah, as we've seen throughout the series, you and I are not supposed to play Jonah off as a negative character and say, well, we shouldn't be like Jonah. Jonah was this bad guy. Instead, we, like the Israelites, are called to see ourselves in Jonah and called to understand that, that we're often a lot like Jonah. We are often big screw-ups. We often mess up God's plan in big ways. We often uh, have a call from God and we, we, we go on a detour or we disobey him. So like Jonah, we, we learn here in this chapter that even Christians, even people of God close to him, can fall into habits of sin and fall into old habits of self-deception, self-destruction. Um, and we need to, like Jonah, realize that even when we collapse, even when we sin and fall in on ourselves, God still loves us. Uh, God still cares for us. Even at our worst, we often intellectually realize that God loves us despite our sin, but we get into this easy habit of thinking that God now loves us because we're good people. God now loves us because we're better than other people. And so when we fall and we trip up, we start to, to wonder whether God loves us or stays with us. As we've seen throughout the whole book of Jonah, God never deserts Jonah. I certainly would have if I were God. I would have said, this is done. I've done the best I can do with you. You are a hopeless case. But God continually comes to Jonah and entreats him. <clears throat> Jonah never stops being God's beloved or God's prophet despite his mistakes. And, and we also need to be aware, um, as Jonah learns here with a plant, <coughs> that it's often the case that God uses uncomfortable circumstances to get our attention. I think if we went around the room today, we would be able to hear story after story about a time or a situation where God had to kind of make us uncomfortable in order to wake us up, had to kind of disturb our lives in some sense, had to um, make us distressed or feel despair so that we might get back on the right track. Um, we often, I think, need to recognize negative circumstances in our life not as um, unfortunate tragedies that God didn't have the power or foresight to prevent, but perhaps as tools in the hands of God meant to shape us into Christ-likeness, meant to bring us back on the path um, that we were supposed to be on all along. And then lastly, the third point from Jonah 4, um, this question that Jonah uh, hears at the end of the chapter, the question God asks him, 
Should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not come and rescue and save Nineveh? We know that God's love, his patient love for us, leads him to rescue his people. It commits him to bring salvation. This has been God's stance towards creation since the very beginning. Creation falls and God says, I will pursue you. I will come after you and save you. Um, God's love, his character, commits him to rescue, to pursue, to run after that which is lost and that which is in the dark. There's, I think, another parallel between Jonah here in chapter 4 and Jesus on Palm Sunday. If you remember, Palm Sunday is the day where Jesus goes into the city riding on a colt. He enters into the city to bring salvation, to die for the sins of the people, to resurrect on their behalf. Jonah hears the opposite again of Jesus. Jonah goes out of the city praying for its destruction, upset that it might be saved. Jesus, however, goes into the city for the very purpose of saving his people, that we might receive salvation and be able to follow him into the future. Jesus going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is the realization, is the fulfillment of God's desire to save his creation. Jesus on the cross, Jesus in his resurrection, is the very plan of God all along to come not only to Nineveh, but to you and I, to the whole world, to bring salvation and redemption and rescue. Um, God's attitude towards his creation commits him to a certain stance and to certain actions in creation. And it's when we see and celebrate and worship Jesus that we see and celebrate and worship God's plan to come and redeem and rescue. And so this morning, as we come to the table, as we do every Sunday, and, and remember Jesus' death and resurrection, I, I pray that we would come in order that we might celebrate God's identity, his actions towards us, his love for us, his gracious and steadfast loving nature. I pray that we would celebrate the, the action of God and the person of Christ coming into Jerusalem, coming into our world, dying on the cross and resurrecting on our behalf. I pray that like Jonah, we might um, be able to look at our own lives and see where we perhaps are like Jonah, what sin perhaps in our own lives, what detours we take in our lives, what negative attitudes or conceptions we might have. As we've been doing throughout the season of Lent, we, we dig into our sin and, and seek to repent from it so that we might more fully be able to celebrate and rejoice and follow our Lord. And so as we come to the table, um, I pray that we would both identify with Jonah and, and then try to lean away from Jonah's perspective and, and celebrate and enjoy instead of complain about the fact that God is loving, not only to us, but to all, and that God has come for our salvation in the person and the work of Jesus. And what a beautiful way to celebrate and begin Holy Week uh, as we um, remember what Jesus has done on our behalf as we begin to celebrate it and as we look forward to celebrating as we do every year the, the cross, Jesus' crucifixion, and his resurrection from the grave. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for all of the blessings that you've poured out in our life. Uh, we give you thanks for the story of Jonah, for the tale of Jonah, uh, where we might see firsthand one of your people mess up royally and yet remain in your arms where we might see one of your people mess up and yet still fulfill your purpose for their life where we might see someone take a detour and yet still be held in your arms in the midst of that detour I pray that um, you would create in us an awareness and an enjoyment of your love for us 
of the salvation that you have given us, which you have acted upon on our behalf in the person of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. I pray that as we worship you and as we turn away from our sins, you might enable us um, to live lives of joy and of peace and of love, that we might both receive your love for us and then go share that love with the people around us. It's in your son's name that we pray all these things. Amen.